Welcome to Important, Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit, like you. Folks, there's a lot going on out there. Our world is changing every single day. We give you the tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. That includes the context straight from the smartest people on Earth and the action steps you can take to get involved. Our guests are scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, uh, farmers and educators, CEOs and founders, astronauts, even a couple reverends. Some quick housekeeping before we get to the episode. A reminder, you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp or on email at questions at importantnotimportant.com. That's also right there in your show notes. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's the most important science news, plus analysis and action steps, once a week on Fridays. You can hunt for a new, impactful job on the front lines of the future at importantjobs.com. If you work for a company or organization already doing that kind of work, from climate change to maternal health uh, to mosquitoes, you can list your open roles there for very affordable rates and get them in front of our entire incredible community, again, of scientists and designers and, and writers and product managers and engineers of hardware and software Uh, All of them. We are so lucky to have them and excited to help them take that next step. Folks, this week's episode is going to help you understand the growing mosquito problem, uh, which is really saying something when those little bastards have killed more people than basically anything ever. Our guest is the wonderful Dr. Omar Akbari, and he is one of the world's preeminent biotechnology and mosquito researchers. I learned so much about what's changing in the mosquito world, which now very much includes California, and that includes uh, factors like climate change and also gene drives, which we talked about in one previous episode, and that has changed a little bit since uh, since then. Um, we also talked about how a virus like uh, SARS-CoV-2 or uh, the disease COVID-19 could level up into something mosquitoes find hospitable And then that's basically all she wrote. So please enjoy this episode. I hope you find something useful out of it. And uh, again, send us feedback and uh, we'd love to hear it. Thanks. My guest today is Dr. Omar Akbari. And together we are going to, gosh, what's the best metaphor here? Take a bite out of the, uh, the big mosquito question. How much of a problem are they? globally, uh, shed some more light on that for everyone in the global north or or western world, and how is that changing for everyone, and how did we get lucky when it came to to COVID, and what does that mean for the future? Uh, Dr. Akbari, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. For sure. Omar, if you could, could you tell us real quick uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Omar Akbari, and I'm an associate professor at University of California, San Diego. i I run a lab and we, we do a lot of research on insect vectors, um, also on crop pests. Um, and I also teach um, molecular biology uh, at UCSD. Wow. All right. So you got, a, you got a few arrows in the quiver there for sure. Oh, yes. It, yes, I do. That's awesome. Uh, well, I'm, we're, we're glad you haven't settled for one, one boring topic and, and you're taking on all these. So thank you, sir. Dr. Akbari, we'd like to start with one kind of ridiculous question. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it, we feel like it does set the tone for, for things. Instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, uh, I'd like to ask, uh, Doctor, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold. Have fun with it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that we are doing research which will benefit humanity. You know, we work on mosquitoes, and, and mosquitoes are, are considered to be the world's deadliest animal. Um, that kill more people on Earth than any other animal combined. Um, there was actually an article that came out today uh, in The Guardian that, that says, you know, the climate crisis is going to put 8 billion uh, people at risk of malaria and dengue fever. Um, and that is going to be in 50 years from now. So this, the problem is not going away. It's getting worse progressively. And the tools that are presently available to combat this problem are, are not working, right? So I would say, I'm here to benefit humanity by by hopefully developing new tools to combat uh, mosquitoes and other pests. Wow. 
Um, I did see that article, and yeah, our newsletter is about to go out uh, today, and, and fo- this is uh, recording July 9th. Um, and yeah, <laughs> you see that number, and you kind of blink and go eight eight billion. So basically, everyone at that point, it's uh, that's something else. That's yeah. something else. Yeah. Well, so before we get into to all of that, you know, I, I wanted to have this conversation today, and kind of thinking about where we'll go with this. I mean, I'm sure you're aware through your work and and to most folks out there, uh, unless you have lived in Washington, D.C. and stuff like that, to to most of the global north, uh, as it's put, you know, barring a a Zika outbreak, uh, mosquitoes can be seem like very small potatoes. They're obnoxious, but they're not a a threat necessarily to to most folks in in the Western world a lot of the times. Um, But in, in the rest of the world, that's very much not the case. And it is getting more real here uh, every day, uh, like you said, with the with the dengue article there, which we'll, we'll definitely put in the show notes and, and talk about a little bit. So w- we need to be educated on not only what's coming our way and changing in places like uh, Los Angeles and Southern California, where one of the biggest bragging rights has usually been like, no bugs, and that that's changing quickly. But we also need to do a better job understanding how the rest of the world has been dealing with uh, mosquitoes and the diseases they carry for for a very long time. You know what 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 has been learned there, and what can be applied here, if if anything. And and what do the next five ten years look as we consider some of these newer technologies and and efforts to um, to reduce the sicknesses and the deaths in a lot of cases that are driven by mosquito travel. Does that make sense? Is that my barking up the right tree? Yeah, I, I think you're you're definitely barking up the right tree. You know, in the like you said, in the global north, there's not there, there's not as much problem in terms of disease transmission by mosquitoes. We don't we don't you know we don't really have malaria transmission in the United States, for example. And and dengue mm-hmm. dengue transmission happens occasionally, um, but it's not it's it's not as significant as it is in, in other parts of the world. You know, that said, there there is some diseases that are transmitted um, in the United States. You know, like West Nile virus mm-hmm. and St. Louis encephalitis mm-hmm. and um, there was actually an article that came out, I think, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, that basically said there's seven states now that have um, West Nile transmission happening, in, in the wow. United, within the United States. So you know there are there are definitely mosquitoes that are transmitting diseases in the United States currently, and and the ones that transmit the the very harmful diseases like dengue, Zika, chikungunya, yellow fever, they're here. You know they've mm-hmm. they've recently invaded the United States. They're they're here. They're they're they've spread throughout California. They're in my backyard. Right, my kids get bit by by them, and and these are eighties or diphtheria eighties that will pick this. And so, right, right. you know, while we don't have local transmission of dengue happening in California, right, that that doesn't yet, yeah. So, I mean, you know, as people start traveling, right, again, post COVID, you know, they, it's possible they'll, they'll go to places where there is dengue. They could and they could bring it back, right? And the mosquitoes are here; they'll bite them and and then transmit locally. So, it's just a matter of time, really. Yeah. Well. I'm excited to help folks understand that context. I mean, that's one of the biggest things as much as we we try to drive uh, action here, like I, I mentioned to you offline, it's it's so important to have context for for why we're doing it and why it's necessary uh, in this moment and what's changed to provide it and what we can change by taking action. You know, it's, uh, again, not to minimize something like COVID, which has obviously been horrendous and horrific in so many ways and to so many marginalized groups as it is. But, you know, it's the same reason we push, uh, you know, big uh, legislative and also NGO action and, and things like that on something like air pollution, which kills millions of people every year and is pretty easily fixable. It's a it's a policy policy choice. Something like mosquitoes is obviously a little more complicated in a lot of ways. But like you said, it's it's happening and it's changing quickly. So we should we should talk about it. So one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, in looking into this stuff again for for sort of the second time and, and reading some stuff uh, that, you, that you've been part of. For a while, we do, just for backstory, we, we didn't really have, everyone remembers, we didn't really have a great handle on how, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 spread, the, the virus that leads to COVID. We, we all washed our hands and all of our groceries like crazy. And uh, everybody was told not to do masks because theoretically the large droplets shouldn't have gotten through and because we didn't have enough masks and the frontline health workers needed them and, but then we all slowly came around to the fact that it's 
probably comes down to aerosols or, or airborne transmission. And so masks became, and, and we verified this incredible tool, but early on you were <laughs> quietly testing to make sure uh, sort of almost worst case scenario that COVID wasn't being spread by mosquitoes like some of these other diseases you mentioned, like malaria and, and dengue in West Nile. I, I wonder before you talk uh, about that, did you do that testing? Because that's a sort of a standard practice when there's a novel virus or pathogen or because there was a fear or even a possibility or probability that it was the case. H- tell me how that works in your lab when, when you see something like that show up. Um, great question. So, so just to, just to clarify, you know, our, our lab didn't actually do that, those tests um, to, sure. to determine whether um, Zika was transmiss- transmissible by mosquitoes. It, it was done by another group, but you know, these mosquitoes that, that, you know, they're capable of transmitting viruses. They transmit many viruses. And, and so when you have a novel virus that, that you know, um, comes on the radar, it's, it's always good to see if, if these vectors could possibly transmit it. And, and that's what was done here. Um, in particular, they tested whether Aedes aegypti and a few other vectors could transmit Zika, uh, um, or not Zika, I'm sorry, uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, and they found that, you know, they, they could not. So I think, you know, it, it, it was a really great thing that they, you know, it would, it, the pandemic has been horrible and it still is horrible. You know, we're still all, you know, dealing with it and, and suffering from it. So wearing a mask seems to work, right? Because mo- majority of transmission happens through airborne droplets, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mask wearing really, really helps. And, you know, you can, you can prevent spread that way, but you can't really, it's, it's really difficult to prevent a mosquito from biting you. So, if it mm-hmm. if it was transmitted by mosquitoes, then you know just imagine what the quarantine would look like, right? <laughs> People might be hiding in their bathrooms, you know, to prevent, uh, sure, you know, with with masks to prevent both airborne droplet and mosquito mosquitoes from biting them. You you wouldn't want to go outside, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and these mosquitoes, you know, a lot of them can bite during the day, um, and they and they live around our household in small containers. They breed in small containers, so. They're, they've, they've sort of adapted to, to living in, in human habitats. And so they're really difficult to control. And so I think, you know, had it, had it been the case, it, it would just would have been a much more severe situation. So could you, could you put any, obviously entirely hypothetical, but again, just so people understand and talking with, and again, the, the, the diseases that the mosquitoes carry are obviously all different and in a variety of ways. And the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is obviously different from from those, but I guess putting it up against, and I, again, uh, apologies if this doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but putting it up against what we know so far about the airborne aerosol transmission, how would the situation have been different, uh, not just practically hiding in our bathrooms, which, I mean, at that point, you got nowhere to go. You can't even open a window to get air trans, or to get airflow, like we've learned is important. H- how would practically that have been different, I guess, possibly Transmission-wise, if something like SARS-CoV-2 was carried by mosquitoes, what I guess what are we looking like, you know, as as that grows? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to put a number on that, but but what I can, for sure, what, what I, I guess more scope. Yeah, I mean, what what I can say is that you know it you know there's an it just would depend on what species of mosquito is transmitting, and because different okay. species prefer different climates, but but I will say that you know it's estimated that one half of the world is presently at risk of being, uh, of being infected by dengue virus, right? Because the mosquito is present in, in pretty much over half of the world, uh, you know, half of the world. They live in areas that, that uh, cover half of the world. So if the mosquitoes are, are present, right? And, and we all know that uh, pretty SARS-CoV-2 has basically spread everywhere, right? Then you just, you just would have this increased likelihood of transmission that would that would have been a result of, of mosquito bites. Um, but again, thankfully, thankfully it wasn't the case. But you know, what's going to happen? What 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 is the next pandemic going to be? Right? The previous epidemic was Zika virus, right? And that and that, you know, was spread by mosquitoes. And and it and we saw, you know, uh, you know, it, it was a scary time when when you see these babies on on the news that have microcephaly because of a, of a mosquito-borne virus. So thankfully, that wasn't also airborne via droplets, you know, but if it was, then that, that could have been far worse. So I think we, we need to figure out a way to deal with these mosquitoes, you know, that, that, that is effective, that doesn't, you know, rely on just 
spraying chemicals into the air that you know are going to kill the mosquitoes, but also are going to kill other insects and and sure. possibly harm us as well, sure. our, our kids. We need better solution. And and the insecticides is you know there there there's been documented resistance. You know, mosquitoes have evolved resistance to these insecticides. They're not as effective mm-hmm. as they used to be. So we just need new solutions for when the next pandemic does happen. If it happens to be transmissible by mosquitoes, what are we going to do? Sure. And if you could, um, again, if you could educate me and, and the rest of us, uh, w- again, to try to understand some context, something like dengue or malaria or Zika, how often do those have sort of a variety of pathways of transmission? So not just airborne, but also surface, not just airborne, but also uh, by mosquito. Is is that something that's common or would that be a pretty rare situation? I, I think it would be a pretty rare situation. So so all the pathogens that I've mentioned are, are vectored by mosquitoes and, and mosquitoes are required for transmission. Um, so... You know, it, it would be rare, but but it's it, it's not out of the realm of possibility. So I think, you know, we just need to be prepared. How if you could go one step deeper with me, because I have a bunch of small children, and all they do is ask why, 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 and I'm trying to apply that in in some of these bigger questions. How does a how does a, a virus evolve to require a mosquito? Like we know that viruses need a host. Um, And with every host, it's a chance to either infect, make sick, or kill someone. But if it kills someone, it it doesn't have anywhere uh, to go unless it's gone somewhere else. But what is specific about to those viruses and mosquitoes? Why mosquitoes? Well, you know, the viruses, you know, they they have hosts and they have vectors, right? And... Mm -hmm. And the host is, is oftentimes, you know, an animal or like us, for example, humans. And so, you know, the virus is present in our blood. Mosquitoes need blood to, 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 to propagate. So it's, for mosquitoes to have progeny, mos- female mosquitoes have to take a blood meal. And so it's an opportunity for the virus to enter the mosquito, right? And not all viruses are transmissible by mosquitoes. A lot of them, the mosquito immune system is able to sort of prevent the replication of those viruses, but some viruses are able to escape that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these viruses like dengue virus and Zika virus, for example, are, are really not predicted to, to harm the mosquito in, in any negative way, right? So they, they make it hmm. into the mosquito through a blood meal that the mosquito gets from its host, and then they sort of evade the immune system of the mosquito and then are able to be um, replicated and then transmitted to the next um, victim. So, you know, I, 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 you know, certain viruses ha- have been able to evolve that that those features over time, and and well, well many of them, you know, um, get get selected selected against, you know. So, yeah, it's just I, I don't really we don't really understand exactly how that works, but mm-hmm. um, but we know it happens, and and um, and so there are many viruses that that are transmiss- transmissible by mosquitoes. I guess that's one thing that's really interesting is. Where a virus like, uh, like a coronavirus is is going to affect its host as well as you know seek out other hosts through a variety of vectors and and transmission options. But you said uh, th- those viruses don't actually affect the mosquitoes. Is that correct? Yeah. So so you know they're, they're when you when you do fitness experiments on infected mm-hmm. mosquitoes versus mm-hmm. non-infected mosquitoes, there's not in a lab. There's not there's not a significant difference. So there's no real huh. obvious negative consequence of being infected by the virus on, on the mosquito, right? So that that enables the 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 virus to sort of to persist and to be spread, sure. right? Because if it if it were to negatively affect the host, so or the vector, I mean, um, let's let's say you know when the virus gets in the mosquito, it kills the mosquito. Well, that would be that wouldn't be an um, ideal scenario for the virus, right? Because then the virus would quickly get selected selected against because it would just kill all all of the vectors. So, so there there has to be this this um, balance, right? Where mm-hmm. um, you know it's it, it, in order for the virus to spread, it, it doesn't want to negatively affect the vector. So that's that reminds me of the difference between among many differences, but the difference between uh, as we described it, uh, SARS or SARS. 
you know, the disease that came from SARS-CoV-1 and how much more, uh, how much higher the, the fatality rate was from that than, uh, than SARS-CoV-2. And as we've described it, COVID-19, which where so many of the cases were asymptomatic. And, and while those people had lower viral loads from as far as we can tell, it enables, it still enables the, the virus to spread further, to transmit further because it's not killing the hosts as often. Am I misunderstanding that? No, you're, you're exactly right. You know, the, you know, the, you know, if the virus is going to, to kill its, its host, um, you know, then, then it's, not, it's, it's less likely to be spread um, as mm-hmm. as far so SARS-CoV-2, you know, like you said, there was many asymptomatic cases, and you know that contributed to the the wide scale spread, right? That mm-hmm. that's still ongoing, and you know it's it's in some ways it's it's the perfect um, storm, right? You sure. have a a virus which which can be lethal, but in most cases it's not, um, and it can it can go undetected and and enable its its rapid spread through air droplets i mean it's it's right. it's the perfect storm for for um, a pandemic and it's it's interesting and this is probably a different conversation i mean i've i've had it quite a few times but we don't need to go down this route but you know what what made this uh more deadly to to certain groups um and turned out to be many of the most marginalized groups in america were the pre-existing cardiorespiratory and cardiopulmonary conditions that already existed, which uh, were one layer of what made what makes uh, COVID-19 more deadly to many of those groups because of the way it operates once it's in your body uh, versus healthy white young people, for example, who certainly have been affected, but not nearly as, as, uh, as fatally as, as many of those groups. But then also, again, like you said, because it is able to transmit so much more, I guess, silently or subtly, you see it transmitting so much more effectively in these places where, again, many of those same groups are living in multi-generational households or working in meat factories or whatever it, it may be. It's People weren't dropping dead immediately, so it was able to keep passing through them uh, pretty quickly. Right. That's exactly exactly the case. It's, it's super unfortunate. So uh, I want to understand a little bit about this specific mosquito that that you mentioned, and I'm going to definitely mispronounce its name. Aedes uh, aegypti. Can you can you do a better job of that for me? Yeah, Aedes aegypti. Aedes aegypti. Oh, damn it! So close. So, Doc, w- w- what is it, and why is it so much more dangerous versus other mosquitoes? Maybe I'm misunderstanding that, but can you talk a little bit about what it is and what it does and uh, how it lives and why it's so different. Right. Um, I mean, Aedes aegypti is an invasive mosquito originating from Africa, and it's spread throughout, you know, the Americas during the slave trade. And it's, you know, it's present throughout the United States and uh, Central and, and South America. It transmits a number of different viruses. So it transmits dengue, Zika, yellow fever, chikungunya virus, for example. Um, mm. And it also, it also is a, a species that has evolved to sort of prefer to live um, in, in human, like in where humans live. Um, and it, it um, prefers to breed in these small little containers. So, so even, you know, a, a bottle cap from a soda bottle, for example, if it had, um, if it was full of water from rain, you know, a gypti would actually lay its eggs in that. And, and, and that's, you know, so it can, mm-hmm. it can propagate in very small um, pools of water. And it also prefers to bite during during the day, and it can and it lives. It, it can hide in our households, and it's 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 an extremely intelligent species. And also, its bites. You know, when it bites you, you don't really feel anything. It, it doesn't hurt at all. So, um, hmm. it's an, it's it's just really efficient at you know at at sort of dwelling with humans and and transmitting pathogens. So, it's it's one of the ones we need to to really worry about um, here in the United States because it's now it's now become relatively abundant. That's super helpful and and more or less terrifying. I mean, it sounds like every every one of those beats was uh, something specifically engineered to be super effective, including the fact that you don't really notice when it bites you, which uh, unlike, for example, a snake bite, uh, where, you, where in some cases you have a limited amount of time to get the venom out, for example, um, or take an antidote. Uh, there's, there's, I, I imagine there's not really anything like that 
uh, when you when you can't tell and when it's biting all day versus dusk, which is I think how a lot of folks imagine mosquitoes to uh, be prime hunting hours. Exactly right. You know, and and they're and they're also um, incredibly intelligent as well. You know, there's been studies where they've they've actually done um, sort of conditioning, and they and they found that that these mosquitoes are able to learn, um, you know, and and adapt rel- relatively quickly. So, like when you, for example, when you when a, when the mosquito lands on you to bite, if you swat it away with your hand, it, it'll learn from that, and it 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 won't, you know, it'll learn that 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 that's something that they should avoid, and and um, and next time it'll it'll sort of adapt and and bite in a different spot. And so it's, it's really um, fascinating actually that, that they're how intelligent they actually are. I'm glad that you find it fascinating for me. It's just like, my God, that's wild. I mean, we, we humans do a poor enough job um, extending the, the term intelligence to a, you know, a huge variety of, of species on this planet that, that deserve it. But that is pretty, pretty wild for something, an organism that we, I guess laymen, especially myself, don't consider that complex. Um, that's pretty incredible. So I, I, I know, and again, I mentioned I've spent most of the past twelve years in Los Angeles. I'm kind of back to the East Coast now, but you know, one of the bragging rights of Southern California, besides it used to be mildly sunny and warm, which is not so much the case anymore either, and I guess kind of goes part and parcel with this. We didn't used to have a lot of bugs, and now we do. Can you talk about this mosquito showing up in California and Southern California and uh, what that has done, how much it's spread, and, and I guess how, you know, this climate crisis and, and how it's getting so much hotter in a lot of these places, why are they becoming breeding grounds for uh, this serial killer of a mosquito? Right. Yeah. I mean, this mosquito prefers warmer climates. So as you know, temperatures warm through global warming, you know, it's, it's actually expanding its, its, its habitable range. And, you know, back to California, it invaded California in 2012. So it was first found, um, you know, in, in parts of Southern California in 2012. And, and since then it's, it's basically spread throughout the entire state. Um, it's found in pretty much all counties. And, and, you know, I mean, I live in San Diego and in my backyard, I, I find them, you know, at, you know, right around uh, during the day when I'm working in the yard or even at dusk, I, I find them and I catch them and I have a little microscope in my office and I bring them in just to confirm that they are, they're what I think they are and they are what I think they are. And so it's a pretty big problem. I think we need to, we really need new tools to, to, um, to, address, to address this. For our West Coast listeners, how, how much have they spread since 2012? Is this a fairly... Uh, sporadic, I guess, weak yield, or or have they have they really uh, infiltrated the place? I mean, um, because I think a lot of people that have been there for a long time don't really realize the extent of it, unless I'm misunderstanding it, which is more yeah. or less how my day goes. No, I mean, you know, they they've they've spread throughout the entire state, and and fortunately in California, there's there's really good uh, vector control programs throughout the state. And in San Diego, we have a really good program too. And prior to their, you know, this this vector control program, like like many, actually will trap mosquitoes and bring them back to the their labs and and sort of speciate them, so they know sort of what species are present, you know, in the population. And and what's happening now is is this species act, is actually becoming the dominant species that that's found in these traps, right? So. That's telling you that it's actually it, it's not just sporadically here. It's it's kind of invaded and it's um, it's here it's here to stay and it's becoming the dominant vector. Good times. Okay. Uh, well, that's that's helpful to note. Again, set the set the table for folks to again further understand that this is not just um, uh, an issue that's in Africa or otherwise. That it's not just a Zika issue in Florida. It's it is everywhere, and especially in California, which is, uh, as we can tell, uh, getting quite a bit hotter. Um, to just to pivot a little bit, uh, Omar, in I think late twenty nineteen, mid twenty nineteen, and I alluded to this offline. We had our first conversation about mosquitoes uh, with a woman named Dr. Dr. Natalie Koffler, uh, and she's a molecular biologist, I believe. She's teaching at Harvard Medical School, and she founded um, Editing Nature, uh, and they're basically a Again, as I understand it, a working group trying to explore and 
push folks around the world to conduct serious ethical investigations. So not just with the microscope, not this, to, not to minimize that, but really, you know, taking the sort of liberal arts view of before we just genetically modify uh, a bunch of male mosquitoes or what have you and let them loose in the wild, asking those questions of, of, of should we? And one analogy I recall her using, uh, discussing, discussing the power to build, for example, gene drives into mosquito populations was, was CRISPR and how uh, Dr. Jennifer Dudna, who started CRISPR, really tried to very early on recognize the power that was there and, and tried to consider in her own lab and push the nascent CRISPR community to incorporate ethics from the top to make it a more transparent space for everyone. And, and I imagine, and there have obviously been a few hiccups here and there, but that's probably a big part of the reason why CRISPR hasn't just been ripped loose everywhere so far. But uh, along the way, and even before that conversation we had, um, I recall, I mean, there are genetically modified mosquitoes have been released in, in Indonesia uh, to try and combat dengue. And and I know, uh, I believe recently, Oxitec released a few hundred thousand uh, engineer mosquitoes in the Florida Keys uh, this year. I, I saw one report, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that Aedes aegypti is only about 4% of the mosquito population in the Keys, but is responsible for all of the mosquito-transmitted disease, which kind of tracks with what you were just saying about being a super predator. But local folks were really against the release. So, you know, basically framing it as, you know, look, it's not super appealing to have a science experiment released in your backyard to see if it's going to continue to kill you or not. So I wonder if we can talk about ethics uh, along this stuff. How much are ethics part of your lab's work? How much do you consider that when we talk about, you know, we look, this thing is happening. We need new tools. Yes, those are great questions. And, and ethics is extremely important in, in the work that we do. And we think about it every single day. Um, and I've, I've, I've written um, articles, you know, with social scientists and ethicists related to uh, gene drives and genetic control of mosquitoes um, in the past. And so uh, we think about it all the time. And, and you know, just going back to your, uh, your point with the Florida Keys um, uh, trial with the Oxitec mosquitoes, um, you're right. There, there was a lot of resistance there, and and people were were afraid, and and they didn't want to be guinea pigs, and and they thought that you know why why are they doing this in my backyard, you know, um, mm-hmm. and so there there was that sentiment, but but I think a lot of that stems from just um, fear um, of of something go, going wrong, and mm-hmm. and really that has to do with it being such a new technology, right? It's it's sure it is it is relatively new using. Using genetically modified organisms to control populations is not something that that is done regularly, right? And so there there is going to be that fear initially when you have a new technology, but you know Oxitec has done its its diligence and it, and it's trialed this technology in many locations with with great success, and and you know in a lot of ways it's safer than what we're currently using. Um, if you if you go back and you just type in Zika in Florida on Google. You're going to find, mm-hmm. you know, images of airplanes, like s- just spraying, uh, you know, neighborhoods, and you just you just see the spray sure. coming out of the back of the airplane, which is insecticides, right? I mean, what is what is the consequence of that, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. And and when you have a technology where you're you're actually using the species to control itself, right? I mean, it's it's a really it's a really nice technology because you know. Male mosquitoes know how to find females, right? You just release them, they go out, they find them, they mate with them, and that will control the population. And in a lot of ways, that's that's far safer than what's currently being done. And I think it's just not well understood, and it, it's still a new considered a new tech, a new approach in technology, and that people are just afraid of it in general. Sure, and I and I think that context is essential, right? Because it's not as if this is our first attempt at trying to save off these infections and this and this spread and, and these disease vectors. We have been trying, and again, these are intelligent species, uh, not to mention the viruses themselves. They are going to evolve and adapt like bacteria has been doing to all of our antibiotics. You know, this isn't our first attempt. And while, of course, we should be incredibly ethical and, and stop and, and ask, you know, how are we proceeding? Who are we affecting? Why are we doing this? 
uh, you know, are there any other options? Have we thought about the best way to test it and and release it and promote it? It's important to always put it up against what's already out there. And I mean, pesticides are are a nightmare, right? I mean, the the number of flagrant existing issues, for example, we're losing bees uh, everywhere. So I, I it's important, I feel like, to come back to first principles on these things, right? Which is gene drives uh, and and technologies like this to to like you said uh, the males are going to go find the females we, if we can do the work and they can control their own populations great um, pesticides have been a nightmare they've helped in some ways but obviously created a whole host of other issues all the way from again bees down to our soil doesn't really work as well anymore like you said images of planes dropping pesticides during during Zika coming back to these fundamental building blocks which is th- these issues and these uh, these animals have been there forever, but now one of the biggest issues is this overheating planet. I, I'm curious if you at all integrate that sort of multidisciplinary thinking into your work, which is, hey guys, also we need to deal with climate change because California is getting way, way hotter and it's becoming a breeding ground for this for this thing I'm working on. Uh, you know, it's not just heat death as an issue. It's not just uh, crops. It's also becoming a much bigger disease vector for the, for this specific problem that has killed, like you said, more humans than anything else in history. Do you guys think about climate change in your work at all? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah, um, that's great. We do, we do think about climate change, but, but mostly in respect to how it's changing, like vector, vector populations and, and, and sort of, you know, the, the movement of those species. And, and, and along with that, you get, potentially more disease transmission. I mean, we think about it in that respect, not, not so much of can we develop a technology in our lab that's going to tackle climate change. We're not specifically working on that, on that change, on that, you know, you know, that goal to stop climate change, but we're working on sort of trying to develop tools that can, can combat sort of these, these, these problems that are going to continue to become bigger problems as climate change, change continues. So most of our focus right now is on, on mosquitoes and, 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 you know, going back to your question about ethics and, and how we incorporate ethics into our work, you know, we've thought a lot about it. And really, one of the big concerns right now with, with gene drive is that, you know, gene drive has the potential to sort of modify entire, entire species, right? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the question is, what is, what is a modification that you're going to use? And so there's one one use of gene drive is is called population modification, where the goal is to spread a effector into a population that can provide a refractoriness to a pathogen. So, for example, mm-hmm. malaria resistance, right? So, if you have have a gene that can prevent the mosquito from transmitting malaria, then the goal would be to to spread that gene throughout the mosquito population, and then you know once it once it reaches fixation. The mosquitoes will no longer be able to transmit malaria. That, that's kind of mm-hmm. the goal of it, right? But you know, the problem is that you know you're, you know, with c- current gene drive designs, you know, we don't we don't really understand enough about these effectors to to sort of allow us to release mosquitoes that that sort of encode these effectors into populations and allow them to spread everywhere, right, and uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we can't, we, we want to do it in a controlled way where we can sort of test these effectors and, and if they don't work or if something unintended happens and we can remove that gene drive from the environment. And so I think a lot of the ethics has to do with, okay, well, how can we, how can we release something that we, we can't control afterwards? And then who gives you permission? Who, who, you know, who has a say in that, right? So if you release it mm-hmm. in one location and it can pretty much go everywhere, you know, is it okay for that, for, you know, just, just to get regulatory approval and, and public acceptance in, in just that one location, the initial release site, or do you need to get it everywhere, right? And so these are just some of the ethical concerns that are kind of um, on the table that people are actively discussing at the moment. And so, you know, in our work, what we've been doing is actually sort of redesigning um, genetic control systems to be um, effective but controllable. So we've we've designed ways to use gene drives that allow only controlled spread in in a, in a single population. Um, mm-hmm. And then we've also gone back and designed completely combinable genetic control systems that don't use gene drives 
that can also be used to eliminate populations of, of insects and animals. So I think, you know, we, we definitely have listened and, and we've, uh, we agree that the concerns are valid. And, and so maybe we're not ready to, to sort of uh, unleash something we can't control <laughs> at, this, sure. at this point in time, which is understandable. And it doesn't mean that there are not other ways to design these systems to make them controllable, to enable safe testing, and also to, to potentially reduce disease transmission and save lives. And that's kind of what we're working on. Sure. And it's not black and white, right? We can't just say, look, this thing is killing X number of people a day. Like, let's push this thing out. Um, but at the same time, it is helpful to have that comparison, which is, you know, we have to take some shots at this because it is, it is like you said, um, killed killed billions of people throughout history and continues uh, to do so. I'm curious, what what are some of the biggest, most, I guess, frequent obstacles that you and your lab run into in, in understanding these issues and developing these new mechanisms? Are they technical? Are they ethical? Are they funding? Are they regulatory? I, I would say all of the above, you know? Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I mean, you have to get funding to do the work, which sometimes sure. can be challenging. And and then you know you, you want to develop tools and systems that that will be used, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. spend all of our time engineering something in the lab that's just going to sit in our lab. You know, we want to make sure, sure that what we develop is what people need and want, and and what regulatories will allow us to use. And so, I think you know you have to kind of participate in all of these discussions in order to understand the complexities of of, of what's happening in the world and what what's really needed and, and wanted at this time. You know, I think with mosquitoes, you know, I, I think with, with gene drive, for example, I, I don't think we're ready to, to release something that we can't control from what everything that I've participated in and, and, and heard from both regulator, regulators, ethicists, social scientists. And, you know, if I didn't participate in those discussions, you know, I, I probably wouldn't realize that. Right. And, and so I think you know it, it's really important to 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 be involved in all those discussions and and to and and when you realize something is is potentially not feasible, right? Even though you can build something, doesn't mean it's something we can ever use, right? But when you realize that, I think it's important to go back to the drawing board and, and rethink, you know, how how can we redesign this to 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 fit the need? And I think that's that's where we do a lot of our thinking in, in our group. Well, I think that's pretty specific and obviously probably uh, immensely more helpful than just uh, crop dusting everything with with pesticides, um, which a lot of drawbacks. Doc, so our goal is to provide, like I mentioned to you, these specific action steps that our, our listeners can take to to get involved for themselves, for the greater system, to support your mission with, as we say, sort of their their voice and their in their dollar, and. It can seem a little, I think, probably distant for folks uh, to affect the implementation of of mosquito gene drives around the world, right? Unless they're already working on it or part of the regulatory system or policymaking. And an audience has all of those uh, folks in it, for sure. But at the same time, I imagine there are effective things that they can do. So so let's try. Let's Let's start with their voice. What are the sort of actionable but specific questions that uh, the rest of us should be asking of our representatives. Like I know you mentioned, you know, the the groups, and I apologize, I forget the the nomenclature for the groups that, that will capture the mosquitoes locally and test them and, and things like that. Where can people have an effect? Because obviously mosquitoes biting you and making you sick is a pretty hyper-local problem. Right. You know, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that people can do, right, to sort of prevent themselves from, you know, being bitten by mosquitoes, for example, they could use repellents and things like that. Um, and, you know, they can speak up too. I mean, they could, you know, if, if they find that there's mosquitoes in their yard that, you know, were not a problem previously, they can call their, their local vector control program. And, and, you know, there's one in almost every state and, okay. and speak up and, and let them know like, Hey, look, we, we now have a mosquito problem that wasn't here prior. And we want, we want, we want solutions to this. Right. And, you know, right now the, the best solutions are, are really, you know, mostly insecticide based, but hopefully, you know, in a matter of time, we will have more of these genetic control systems being trialed and, and potentially, you know, used in the environment. And, and, and when that happens, I think, 
we may we may end up with more control uh, of these mosquitoes. But but I think it's also important, you know, going back to the Oxitec example where you know people were very afraid of of the technology and, and things like that. I think it's also important for for people to educate themselves on on what you know what the problem is and how is it presently controlled and and what are the risks, right? And and how have these you know how have these technologies been been validated and and used in the past? And I think with the Oxitec example, you know, people may have would have found that it's it's a very safe technology. Honestly, it's it's not something that is um, predicted to cause any harms and. You know, it's been it's been well uh, vetted by the EPA. You know, they've 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 done an, a lot of testing to to determine whether there is any um, adverse effects that could happen in the environment, and and they're and they're continuing to do that, right? They're not just releasing it and and hoping everything happens. I mean, they're they're actually ongoing experiments that are being done that that will validate whether it's being um, you know transmitted to other species and and causing. Um, effects on other species and things like that. I mean, those, those are ongoing and, and you need to, you need that, you need to continue to do that while you perform the trial because, you know, you can't, a lot of that information you can't get from a laboratory experiment. You have to do sort of a, a more area-wide experiment, which is what's happening here. Is there a good uh, source you can recommend? And, and if, if, if you need to do some thinking on it, we can just put in the show notes uh, that where people can educate themselves on Again, not ju- not just the specific experience in specific lo- uh, experiments in specific localities, but more how these things work to to get a better understanding just in general, um, so that they are prepared when they're either advocating for them or finding out that it's happening locally. Yeah, I mean, I think CDC, you know, has has um, information on their website for you know related to diseases, and then you know, um, in terms of specific genetic control systems, I think. You know, for the Oxitec example, the Oxitec has has a website that's dedicated to, to that 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 can be found online that um, that will provide information about the trial and about the about the how the system works and you know uh, you know even their their um, approvals with the EPA and things like that can all be found there. And I feel like it, it's it's better for 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 people to sort of um, you know educate themselves before they make a make a decision on something, right? They can't just uh, automatically decide. Okay, well, it's genetically engineered. I'm against it, right? I think they need to go in and really, really think about it a little bit and compare to what's being what's being used presently, and and make a decision after that. You know, um, but but as as we see more of these systems, you know, used in the environment, we we generate more data on the safety, right? And so far, they seem to be safer than anything that's that's been used, and so. I I think it's really important to get that message out. Absolutely, I think that makes sense, and we'll we'll find those uh, those links in the and we'll put them in the show notes for everybody so that they're accessible. Well, uh, Doc, I want to thank you for all your time here today. I don't want to keep you. Obviously, you're working on some pretty important stuff out there. So we just have a last few questions we ask everybody if if that's all right, uh, and then we'll get you out of here. Perfect. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome, Doc. When was the first time in your life uh, when you participated in something or realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, either uh, alone or with a crowd or a partner, whatever it might be? <laughs> something meaningful. Um, sure. Well, I, I'll just keep it, you know, mosquito focused because that's what this is. This is about. Sure. <laughs> you know. So I will say that you know, while I was in college, I I was getting a um, a bachelor's master's in biotechnology at the University of Nevada Reno and and that program required all the students to to sort of work in labs and I I, I had the opportunity to work at as a vector control intern at the Washoe County uh, vector control district in, in Reno Nevada and mm-hmm. it was there where I, I sort of learned all about mosquitoes right I, I learned how to how they transmit pathogens I I, I had my own sentinel chicken flocks where you know, there's 10 flocks that were located all around town and I would go collect blood from them every week and test them for transmitted pathogens like West Nile or St. Louis encephalitis. Um, I had my own mosquito fish colony where I would go out and, and put mosquito fish in, pe- in ponds to, mm-hmm. to sort of consume mosquito larvae. And I also participated in, in helicopter aerial applications of insecticides. And I think, mm. I think it was my, this experience, which I did for four summers, um, really 
I, I learned comprehensively of how vector control is done. I did it firsthand and, and how, in my opinion, how expensive and inefficient it is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we were using the most advanced insecticides and, and, and he- literally helicopters to apply them. And, and mosquitoes would still, uh, I would still find mosquitoes every week, right? And, and so, right. Um, and that was in a, in a very developed area, you know, Reno, Nevada. And so imagine how it looks in, in rural parts of Africa, for example, where you don't have that type of infrastructure or control. And so, you know, that's where I realized, you know, that something, something, something better needs to be developed, right? It, sure. it, it wasn't just me reading a, like, you know, a textbook or, or anything like that. It was actually firsthand experience of applying insecticides and, and surveying mosquitoes and all that. And, and I just, it, it was like, in a, you know, it, it hit me hard, like, okay, well, I need to go, I need to stay in school. I need to get a PhD. I need to develop something better. And, and so after that program, the biotechnology program, I stayed on and got a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And I focused on insects. I worked with flies, developmental biology of flies. And then I, and then I went on to a postdoc at Caltech for six years. And, and it was there where I really focus on genetic control systems. And I participated in seminars and, and, um, I learned from the best, right? And, and, and that's where a lot of this, these developments have, have sort of, um, you know, that, that's where I've been inspired to, to sort of develop these, these, these different um, genetic control systems. That's awesome. Well, I mean, that's obviously a pretty uh, crucial point in time for you, you know, watching it and taking part in something that uh, is at that time the best we've got, but, you know, looking around and going, this, this can't be it. You know, this can't be our, our best shot at taking care of these things. I always, I, th- I feel like we're going to look back in, you know, a certain period of time and we are already obviously do this. I mean, we look, we look now, uh, you know, back prior to penicillin and, 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 uh, you look at the difference between, uh, how casualties were treated in world war one versus world war two. And, and, um, you know, obviously we still do it, but for a long time, the best answer was to just cut someone's leg off to stop infection. And that, is thankfully not the case anymore. Or, you know, now we're starting to very, very, very slowly and and strategically starting to move on from things like chemotherapy, which have been our best uh, option in a lot of cases versus uh, cancer, but can be just as brutal as the cancer itself. And and hopefully, you know, done ethically and strategically and, and considered well by folks like yourself, something like gene drives can be um, far more useful and far less uh, have far less friendly fire, as they say, than something like insecticides and, and pesticides um, to try to, you know, control a, a very significant, uh, very wide-reaching problem. Yep, that's exactly exactly right. Doc, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? <laughs> the past six months have been been challenging, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've been, I am sure. I've been on Zoom and, and isolated. I mean, I, okay, so I, I would say, you know, these last six months, I've, I have been working remotely, um, mm-hmm. exclusively. And so all of, all of the work that, 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 that has been done in my lab has been done by the people that I employ, which are the postdocs, the grad students, the students, you know, which have worked tremendously hard during such uncertain times. And, and so, you know, I would say all of the impact of my work has been, is, is handed off to them because they are the ones actually doing the work. I'm just sort of the, uh, the director and, and sort of provide advice and, and, and thinking. So I would say the people that have impacted my work in the last six months are, are my direct, um, uh, the, the people that work in my lab. That's awesome. Well, uh, I, I can't imagine how uh, frustrating and difficult uh, your work your work has been uh, over the past year. So we're we're thankful that you and and all those folks in your lab have have persevered. Certainly, um, quick pivot, Doc. What is your amid all this? What has your self care been like? How have you taken care of yourself? Because you know I've talked to any number of scientists over the past year, and um, it seems like finding that thing has been pretty essential to to keeping your head on straight. Right. I, I think initially, you know, it was, it was really hard, you know, like having to leave the lab and, 
and not not even have a lab for a period of time because everything got shut down. That was really challenging. Um, and I think I just learned how to adapt, right? So initially, mm-hmm. Zoom really sucked, right? I hated it. And I, um, you know, I still prefer in-person meetings, but I think over the last year, over a year, year and a half almost, um, I've I've gotten used to it. I've I've learned how to um, you know use Zoom effectively and 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 manage remotely, which you know I, I had never done prior. And mm-hmm. and so um, I can give you an example of um, we have our, our weekly lab meeting, and you know before it was in a conference room, you know coffee, bagels, fruit, um, and it was enjoyable. We'd go around table and and um, we would have ideas, and it was a lively discussion, right? And that switched to just a Zoom meeting, you know, and I've, one of the ways I've sort of dealt with it is I, every week I go to the beach. So I I go down to La Jolla Shores, I put on my headphones and I walk, I I do my um, Zoom meeting on my phone and I just walk up and down the beach for two hours. um, And that helps me sort of, you know, um, get my mind off, off what's going on and, and also to, to get some exercise. So I'm not just sitting in my office all day at home. Sure. Um, so I think those are some of the things I've done to, to, to sort of deal with it, but, um, I'm really looking forward to just, you know, getting back, getting back to normal at some point. I think we all feel that way, doc. Well, I'm glad you've, you've found ways to cope. Certainly. Um, last one, what is a book you've read this year and all of that free time, uh, that has opened your mind to, uh, maybe a topic you hadn't considered, uh, or an angle you hadn't considered before, or it's actually changed your thinking in some way. Yeah. Um, I, I've actually, I say over the last two months, I've, I've read two books. One of them was a code breaker by Walter Isaacson. And the other was, mm-hmm. ed- is editing humanity by Kevin Davies. And I'm mm-hmm. still, I'm only halfway through editing humanity. Um, but you know, the code breaker, was a good one for me because you know we work with CRISPR and and just hearing about all the heroes of CRISPR and and sort of their their story and how how it progressed into to what it is today was was really inspiring and it, it actually has inspired us to sort of do a little bit of searching you know we've we've we have some new projects in our lab where we're actually mining prokaryotic genomes for new types of of you know bacterial. Uh, uh, control systems that could be potentially manipulated for, for for different purposes, and so we've we've actually you know through bioinformatics we've identified a number of things that are really interesting, and I think it's taking us into different directions. So I, I think that was all inspired from from reading these books, and and it, it's just um, yeah, that's that's my answer. <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, yeah, uh, Isaacson, boy, he did a great job with that one, like he has in, in so many of the previous ones. Uh, it's Pretty, pretty incredible, that story. Listen, just want to say thank you. Uh, where, if anywhere, can our listeners follow you and your lab uh, online or in the news? Yeah, uh, I mean, I have a Twitter account. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm also, I have a website at akbarilab.com. Um, you can find me on there. There's there's also a link on there for donating. If anybody wants to donate to our, to our research, you can do it there. Oh, cool. And, you know, we're, we're, we're regularly on the news, so you, you might find us on the news as well. And, um, yeah, I think those are the best places to reach me. And my email address is also located on our website, so you can cool. reach me directly if you want to. Awesome. Um, well, listen, I can't thank you enough for your time today and, and all the work you're doing for a problem that uh, is obviously going to become much more prevalent uh, in the U.S. Um, hopefully we can contain some of these larger outbreaks, but... We're trying to do a better job here of talking about things like adaptation when it comes to the climate crisis and such. And um, uh, these are obviously all interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, however you want to phrase it, systemic issues. Um, And mosquitoes have been around for a while, as are so many of the viruses they carry. But hopefully the work of folks like yourself can can keep our, our hand out of the frying pan for for a little while longer. So thank you for all the thought you put into it and, and also obviously all the work you do under the microscope. Perfect. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed this, this interview and um, looking forward to, to hearing it when it, when, it, when it airs. Awesome.
Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.